Hello, welcome back to the Full Cup Professionals podcast. We're so excited that you're here and we have an awesome episode for you today. Faith, how are you doing? It's good to see you. It's good to see you. Yeah, no, I'm good. Hello to everyone out there. Yeah, everything's good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm taking some time to visit family this weekend and that's been really sweet. So I am coming at you from a different location than I normally do, but I'm grateful that we can still get to have this chat. This is going to be really, really exciting. Yes. Isn't it just technology so awesome that it allows us to do this from wherever we are? From wherever we are. I love it. From wherever we are. I'm in the same spot that I always am, but I'm loving the new background behind you. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, Faith, what's in your cup? What are you drinking today? Okay. So you know how I'm going to highlight my cup. Today, I am drinking out of a Texas State wine tumbler because Texas State is going to a bowl game for the very first time. So I have to give a shout out to my alma mater. I'm a Texas State alumni. I'm a Texas State cheer leader and alumni. I got my Texas State cheer alumni shirt on. So I'm just repping Texas State today. And I'm very excited for that. And I am just drinking some sparkling water. Some Waterloo is the brand sparkling water, strawberry flavored. Wow. Love that. And congrats to your uh, alma mater on their football successes. (laughs) (laughs) I know nothing of the kind, but I'm happy for them. Yes. It's they're playing the day after Christmas. So hopefully we win. We'll see. Nice. Yeah. What do you have going on in your cup over there? I follow Organic Olivia on Instagram. Um, I have for probably six years at this point. She's an herbalist, but just an incredible businesswoman. She's my age. And sometimes she'll get on these like kicks or she'll learn something and then share it. And then because she has such a big community, everyone chimes in about how what she's trying is also working for them or helping them in different ways. And so she's Mm -hmm. been talking about cranberry juice, just pure, not from concentrated, not sweetened cranberry juice, and how the red pigmentation is really helpful for specific gut bacteria, specifically our bifidobacteria. I think this podcast episode that she had this conversation, I was just about to come out. So what's the juice is her podcast. I love it. But anyway, I just started drinking just like a splash of cranberry juice in my water. And people have had a lot of success with it, helping like reduce water retention reduce bloating, like help with their gut bacteria and their digestion. So anyway, I'm going to get on the cranberry juice train and I can report back and tell you if or how it's been affecting me. Yeah, let us know. Cranberry juice has always been a very good source for that, but it has to be like the pure cranberry juice, not the like concentrated sugary cranberry juice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that one. Not quite the same for sure. Well, yeah. Thanks for sharing. Absolutely. I am super excited for this episode today. Me too. For a number of reasons. One, because we have a guest and we're just diving into the world of having our guests on, but it's been awesome. Two, because the person we're interviewing happens to be one of my favorite people on the planet, but also one of the most intelligent and heart-centered people that I know. And kind. Yes, Yes. very kind. And funny. Funny. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and actually it's like a reunion of us because we all worked together. And so this is like a little mini reunion. Yes, we did. Yeah. But I just remember our guest, you're very serious and a very good worker, but like low key funny. You would just be like, oh, Jillian's hilarious. Oh, and I just gave away who we're talking to. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) 
<laughs> Surprise! Our guest today is Dr. Jillian Landers. And can I just say that there are a few joys I have in life. One of them is being an aunt. The other one is calling one of my dear friends, Dr. Landers. A doctor, To yes. be honest, I put those up on like really similar pedestals. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Jillian Landers. Yeah, and it's really awesome because when we work together... Jillian had just started school to become a PhD. And so it's been really awesome to watch your journey and to see it come to fruition. And so, yeah, I'm just so excited to talk to to her today and to hear her perspective. It goes right along with the messages that we're trying to put out here on the Full Cup Professionals podcast. So yeah, let's dive in. Yes. So Dr. Landers just recently graduated in May with her PhD from Baylor University. Um, and she wrote her dissertation on honestly, a very similar topic to what we have been discussing on this podcast, which is why we've had her on today is we wanted to talk about her dissertation, her findings. So Jill, welcome to the Full Cup Professionals podcast. Welcome. Hey guys, what's up? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What an introduction. That's so funny. (laughs) Thanks for calling me funny. I mean, I have to agree. I, I think I'm kind of funny, but you know, funny looking. Mainly. Oh my God. <laughs> no, you're hilarious. Like hilarious. I love you guys so much. I have been so excited to come on. I've been excited just about y'all's podcast in general from the beginning. Oh, thank you. The inception of the idea. I think it's awesome. And so I'm just so honored to get to be here with you guys and just to get to hang out and talk to y'all. I love you guys so much. Y'all are both good friends of mine. So I'm excited to be here. We're excited. Yes. And I would love if you could just kick us off with telling us a little bit about what made you choose social work. What was it about this space? But if you will add on to that story, there's, I think, something that draws people into the idea of social work to get their bachelor's or their master's to become licensed. And then there's something else that drove you to become a PhD. And so I'd really love to hear like what that journey has been like for you. Yeah, that's a great question. So Going into social work, I had never heard of the field of social work until college. I joined a ministry called Young Lives, which is an offshoot of Young Life. So I worked as a volunteer for teen moms. That's kind of the group I was with. And within that group, I was working with a crisis pregnancy center and there were social workers there. And that was my first kind of exposure to that work. And I love what they were doing and how they were able to just tangibly help the girls and help with their needs and be a part of their lives in such a significant way. And at the time I was studying education and thinking about what I wanted to do after I graduated. And I was just thinking, wow, I would love to do something where I could directly impact populations that are vulnerable and struggling. And so that's what led me into the field of social work. And I went on to get my master's at Baylor, got my MSW. And then during that program, I was exposed to the process of research and got to do a little bit of research and um, really saw the impact that you could make in a broader way with research, kind of like a trickle-down effect of how research can impact practices and programs 
and information. So from there, I kind of had it in the back of my mind when I was graduating, just thinking, what if I just kept going? Like, what if I continued on? I never really thought of myself as like an academic. I never thought I would go that route, but I had really great mentors at Baylor and still do. I have really great professors who poured into me and I saw the work that they were doing. And so I could kind of see a path forward. And so then I had a year in between my master's and my PhD. And I worked a little bit as a social worker at MD Anderson. But during that time, I still kind of had that bug of like, oh, I think I want to keep going. And so I decided to apply and then ended up continuing on at Baylor and doing my PhD at Baylor. And yeah, it was a four-year process after that. Yeah, it's not something I had anticipated. It was just kind of following the next step and the next doors that were open for me and just kind of going back to the root of, oh, I just want to directly impact vulnerable people at the end of the day. Even with my research now, I'm a postdoc research fellow with Baylor at the Impact Lab in Houston. And I still kind of go back to like, what am I doing? At the end of the day, I really just want to help vulnerable people. And now I do it in a very different way, but I still consider research kind of like my way of practicing and helping people. So that's kind of been my journey with it and the path that I've been on into social work and then into research now. Yeah, I love that. That's such an incredible journey. And I love how you talked about like the trickle down effect of research And that is so true because as a trauma therapist in the trauma world, so many people ask me like, why has trauma kind of become like a buzzword in the past like 20 years? Because we just got all of this research in the past 20 years that like gives us the knowledge to like what we have been seeing for years. But now we have the research that says like, yes, trauma does change your DNA and yes, epigenetics. And it really does have a huge trickle down effect. The whole psychotherapy world has shifted because of research that was done 20 years ago on trauma. Mm. And so how cool would it be that if the whole social work or social service world shifts, you know, in the next 20 years because of the work that y'all are doing now at the Impact Lab? Like, how cool would that be? Oh, thanks for saying that. Yeah, I love that. I think that the shift of from evidence-based practice really comes from doing good research and digging into that. I'm a big proponent for like program evaluation. Krista knows this. I like that's kind of what I coming out of my PhD, I'm now really passionate about is evaluating programs and their processes and outcomes. And just to make sure that when we say we want to help people, is it actually helping? I'm excited about the work we're getting to do at the Impact Lab. I work with a homeless services organization. I also am working on developing and evaluating an intervention with girls in the juvenile justice system. And then also doing some research on simulation. It's basically simulation for practice for master social workers so that they kind of simulate practice with them. So that's another area. Yeah. So simulation is something that's kind of come from the medical field into social work now, um, which is cool. So you would have some like real life experience of working with a client or like in a simulated type of way Mm -hmm. when you get out of school. That's awesome. Yeah. If they don't get those clinical experiences during their internship, they'll for sure get them like during the simulation and that kind of thing. So work on some research with that to like evaluate that program. I love research and it's been like a journey trying to understand the world of it. I think academia is kind of like its own 
bubble and social work is kind of its own bubble. And so, um, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) in and of itself, but it's been fun. When the three of us worked together, you were doing direct service. Mm -hmm. So how did that impact your research? Tell me about that experience for you. Because I think sometimes when I think about research, to me, it feels distant. Mm-hmm. Or that's kind of something that crosses my mind is like, that's numbers, that's not theory, because it's tangible, but also how does it really relate to what I'm speaking? And so I love that you are pursuing research, but you you have been there, you have looked people in the eye, walked with them through life, answered their phone calls. So how have you reconciled both of those? How do you integrate both of those experiences and values? Yeah, I'm glad that you pointed that out. So my research really did stem from my direct practice and it stemmed from my experience that I had while I was a social worker. (laughs) Oh, sorry. What were you going to say, Faith? Oh, I was just going to say our COVID experiences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I can yeah. <laughs> I can explain that for a second. So I worked as survivor advocate. Faith, you were my director. And Krista, we were on the same team as well. And so at the time, I was in the middle of my PhD program. And I was trying to decide what I was going to study. And COVID had just hit that year. And I was kind of seeing what was happening within our practice and our team, how that impacted us and how we had to make changes. It was such a whirlwind. We were like, wait, we can't drive to clients. Like we have to figure this out. We send Ubers for them. Like we had to shift so many things. Like we met remotely and I was just seeing how that was impacting us. And I also saw how much it meant whenever we were all together and when we communicated and then when we were able to go into office. I noticed for me how supported I felt by you guys and how that was really the one thing that helped me during the pandemic was the support that I felt from the team and from you, Faith, as like my director. I just saw how crucial that was. And then... Oh, well, thank you. I don't know if I really have articulated to that to you, uh, Faith, but I think that my experience there really bled into what I was learning about and trying to gather as far as like what I wanted to study in my dissertation. So it all kind of happened at the same time. COVID was happening and then I was having this experience and I was also looking into how support impacts people. And then I got into looking into research about organizational support and how that can help helping professionals and what are their needs during times of crisis. And so that's what led me into wanting to study what were social workers' experiences during COVID and what support were they needing from their organizations during this time. And so it was very organic the way that my experience and then what I was reading in the literature, how it all kind of came together to create this centralized topic for me to study during the pandemic. That's kind of how I grounded my research and wanted it to... I didn't want it to be anecdotal of like, oh, I'm experiencing this, maybe everybody else's. I wanted it to be very much like, is this pertinent information? Does this add to the conversation? Is it needed? Research right now. And I really saw that it was. Yeah. I looked at, you know, maybe I want to focus more on like, medical social work, but then I realized I just want to make it broadly looking at social work in general. And so that's kind of how my research came about and how it was kind of like grounded within the reality of what I was experiencing at the time. 
Man, that was such a crazy time. You know, I remember like sitting at the training on the Friday before the world shut down. And at the training, people are like, oh my God, is the world going to close down? Like what's going to happen? And I had like, I'm the boss and people are like, can I leave? And I'm like, no, this is a required training. You have to be here. And then like under the table, I'm like texting my husband, like, well, I just told an employee that they can't leave. So if they shut down the daycare in the next hour, you're going to have to go and get our child (laughs) because I can't be the one to be like, oh, well now I'm leaving. Yeah. But it was just like such a crazy time. And it's just like all the rules went out the window. You know, it was like, I know. And it really was like, and then come Monday, the world had shut down. And, you know, it was just like, okay, now we have to rethink everything. As the manager at the time, what was hard was like that Friday that we were at that training, we were a brand new program. So we had just hired everybody. And that training was the last required training that we all needed to like, be like, okay, we are ready now to do this job. (laughs) And then it was like, okay. Now let's rethink and reorganize and redo everything. So it was just like throw everything you just learned out the window and like, let's start over. (laughs) (laughs) But I think what you said is so true is like, because if we didn't have each other and if we hadn't rallied together, I don't think we, any of us would have made it through. And so it is so vitally important because I like what you said about like who supports social workers when social workers are in crisis, because when there is a crisis, the social workers are the ones answering the crisis. And so who's behind the scenes supporting us? Because mm-hmm. we are also experiencing a crisis. Right. Yes. And I think in the medical field, they were highlighting that often just thinking about how they were stretched so thin during COVID, like nurses and doctors and just exhausted. I think that was also happening with social workers, you know, as well in different fields and just emotionally, you know, supporting their clients. And in the different sectors of social work, there was a rise in domestic violence, child maltreatment rose during the pandemic, all those. So it was like, not only were social workers experiencing their own personal stress, like everybody was experiencing stress from the pandemic, but then in their fields, there was just like more demand at the same time. So there's like this dual experience of stress. And what I kind of saw in the literature is that it was similar to like social workers during 9-11, where they experienced 9-11, but then they were helping other people experiencing 9-11 at the same time. That's kind of what was happening with social workers is like, we're experiencing this public health crisis, but at the same time, we're helping clients deal with it. So it's just like this dual stressor. Yeah. And we were having to make all these real important, maybe life and death decisions and ethical decisions about like, how do we best serve our clients? And, you know, one of the things we did was we would respond to the hospital's Gosh, there was just so many conversations about like, do we still do that? Do we not do that? Is it wrong to not do it? Is it wrong to do it? And it was just like, I had no idea that this is what we would be trying to decide, you know, and having to figure out like, if we go and somebody is harmed because we go, that's bad. But if we don't go and somebody falls through the cracks because the program's not running the way that it should, then that's not good either. And so it was just so hard. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause we're a crisis line. And so we're yeah. trying to help people in crisis, <laughs> crisis. Yeah. during a crisis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it was hard. So I love that you took that experience and you're saying, hey, I didn't only go through this 
collectively all helping professionals probably went through something like this. And so how can we make this a broad thing and make it a more normalized thing of like, hey, we need to start weaving the support in so that the next time the crisis happens, we're not having to go, okay, throw everything out and let's start over. We're having to go, oh, we know what to do. We know how to do this. Yeah. Idea with it was to capture those lessons while it was happening and talk to social workers, look at what the research was saying and really try to get to the essence of what was happening and what were they needing and like, what can we do in the future? So tell us a little bit about your dissertation and what you learned through that research. Yeah. So I started out with interviews. So I interviewed, I think it was 17 social workers and just asked them about their experience. This was, I think, one year into the pandemic. I interviewed them and then I looked at uh, research coming out about social workers' experiences during the pandemic. So I did like a scoping literature review where I just looked at themes across the literature and saw what they were experiencing and what support they were needing from their organization. And then I did a survey looking at the themes I I found from the first two articles. And I saw work flexibility and work-life balance was something that social workers were really needing during the pandemic. And so what I did with the survey I sent out is I looked at what settings were given more work flexibility during the pandemic. And I saw that those in school settings and healthcare settings were the least likely to be given more. And that makes a lot of sense because we know what was happening in schools and hospitals. Like hospitals were stretched thin and schools, they had to go fully remote. And so that was a challenge for social workers in the school and counselors in the school to be able to get to students and help them and provide resources and that kind of thing. That's kind of the arc of my dissertation. I just tried to gather, you know, lessons from that. And then overall, at the end of my dissertation, I have like recommendations for leaders and researchers about how to support social workers during similar crises. And then, you know, what could we continue to research in the future regarding this. That's incredible. Yeah. And just sounds like so much thought went into, I think that's the main thing that surprises me about research is that when we think about research, we think about the answers we get, but your job as a researcher is to think about the questions you ask. So I'd love to just hear you share a little bit about like, you had to pick those questions. You had to pick that lens and that perspective and What was it that kind of made you feel like these are the important questions? These are the important markers to be looking for? It really kind of came back to looking at gaps in the literature. What have people already done research-wise and what was needed? Like what questions needed to be asked? And no one was asking what was happening to social workers during the pandemic. Well, a few people were, but not in the way of looking exactly at organizational support. And so that's why I chose that specific aim. And then from there, you know, within my qualitative research, I had those open-ended questions that I chose just asking them what was helpful, what wasn't helpful, that kind of thing. So just really trying to get to the essence of what they're saying. And then with the survey, like whenever I'm writing out questions for them, I'm just trying to think about how to operationalize the questions I'm asking, you know, and the variables that I'm using (laughs) scientifically, just thinking 
going back to what are the concepts I'm capturing? Do the questions really capture that? Is this going to make sense with the analysis that I use and kind of going from there. So you're kind of thinking about ideas from a broad view down to operationalizing them and bringing them all the way through from start to finish whenever you're creating like a research project. Yeah. Can you tell us the difference between qualitative and quantitative? In school, I always had the hardest time with that. And so if there's somebody listening that may not know the difference, can you just and tell us how that worked out in your research? Yeah, that's a good question. Not to confuse you more, but the type of research that I did, it was called an exploratory sequential mixed method study. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that basically means I did a qualitative first in scoping review, and then I did my quantitative. And the qualitative is open-ended questions. So they're not yes or no questions. You know, how was this experience for you? And then from there, people will provide, you know, their explanation and then qualitative research, you're trying to get at what are they saying about that? And then from there, you code that interview or that time. There's different types of qualitative research. But for mine, I did phenomenological research. And I looked at like the essence of what people's experiences were. And I put that together within themes of like, these are the themes across these people's interviews of what they said about their experience. What were the commonalities? What were the differences? What can we learn from that? And so it's really just breaking down, like in qualitative research, I personally love qualitative research. It takes longer than quantitative because you really have to like sit with their words and get to, you know, what their meaning is behind it. But then with quantitative research, that's like think numbers, think different categories and everything is like quantified. So you're bringing it down to where it can be analyzed and used in different ways. So for example, like a multiple choice question has a certain number of answer choices. And then from there, that answer is one of your variables. And so you kind of can pull it together into an analysis from there. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to explore the topic and then get more specific with my analysis. That's why I didn't exploratory mixed methods. And mixed methods just means putting together qualitative and quantitative research. And so I started with qualitative because I really just wanted to see what was happening, get to the essence of what they're meaning. And then I wanted to get specific and do quantitative and, you know, look specifically at certain variables. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. It sounds like the qualitative is the story of what's happening. And like you've said a couple of times, it's the themes, it's the meat and potatoes. And then the quantitative is, like you said, the operational side of it. Like, how do we make this something that you can research and something that you can measure? Yeah. Yeah. It's more like measurable data and qualitative. They would say it's like less scientific sometimes because you're really going off of like meaning and language, you know, it's less like solidified information. Yeah. The word I was looking for was tangible. Yeah, that's right. It makes like the story, something tangible that you can go. Now this is what we do with these stories. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. When a topic is unresearched or untouched, qualitative research is a great way to start with that because you just want to get a basis for what's going on. And you just want to listen first before you start asking more specific questions. So did you do some of your own research? COVID had never happened before, so that might have been a part of it. But also like 
I'm the first one to be asking these questions in this space. Like, how did you figure that out that no one else was doing it? Well, I saw some bigger like surveys were out there and I saw people were doing similar things. I saw people were looking at social workers' experiences. And then I saw in the past, people were had looked at organizational support for social workers. So I just saw a need for that during this context in time. And so, yeah, that's kind of how they train you within research and with your dissertation is the first thing you do is you get into the literature. First thing, just understanding if you're interested in a topic, just seeing like, has this already been asked? Are people already doing this? You know, is this needed? And so that's kind of where I was at the time, you know, just kind of trying to understand the question I was asking. And I was seeing like, oh, this would be needed good question to explore. And so that's kind of how I came to it. Cool. In this context, the literature means published research, right? Yes. Yeah. Like peer-reviewed research articles. So you're kind of looking at what in this published official space, what are the other questions that people have been asking and what do we still need to know? Yes. Right. Right. Exactly. And the 17 social workers that you interviewed... Were they from all different populations of social work? Because that's one of the things that drew me to social work is that like you could literally do anything or work anywhere within the social work realm. And so how did you decide like who and what are the 17 social workers that I'm going to interview? I just kind of broadly put it out there and mainly focused on like social workers in Texas. And I sent it out in a few different ways trying to think for my qualitative, who I sent that out to. I can't think right now about like the method of how I did that. I think I sent it out through National Association of Social Workers in Texas. I think they sent it out through there. And then I sent it out through like alumni pages to gather responses. I didn't really have an aim on getting, you know, different areas of social work. I just kind of sent it out. And I ended up getting, you know, 50% clinical, 50% non-clinical, and they were all from different areas of social work, different levels from entry level to like management. And so it was kind of a diverse sample. Of course, there were mostly women answered it because in the field of social work, there's probably more women overall. And so I didn't really have an aim to capture from specific areas. I just kind of sent it out through our associations and just kind of saw, yeah. try to cast a wide net. Yeah. Well, that's cool that even though you didn't set out to do it, it worked out that way where you got a very diverse from the type of work and the type of, you know, management, non-management, clinical, non-clinical. Yeah. And social work is very, very diverse. And so I was grateful to get different experiences during COVID because it COVID affected some people in different ways and based off of their settings, whether they could go into work or not go into work and whether they could do some of their services or not. This episode of Full Cup Professionals is sponsored by Good Sustained. I have been in the nonprofit space for a long time and I know what it's like to be in the throes of the work. And that's why we're here, right? Is because we have a job, we have a mission, and we're going to do what it takes to get that job done. But in the middle of 
reports and writing new curriculum and answering emails and going out and serving the community and doing table events and fundraisers and answering hotline calls or taking on that emergency situation, there is hardly any time to ask and assess and dive into, hey, how is my team doing? How are we doing? And then maybe if you have time or you get those answers, do you have time and space and capacity to do what it takes to make sure that everyone's okay, that people are supported? Are you kind of just running on bare fumes, scraping the bottom of your own barrel, just full guns blazing? Or are you able to really stop and think and have some time and space to go, okay, what do we need to operate at our best? And what does our best mean for us? And what is important to us? And how do we be who we want to be and how we want to be in this work? Not just what do we want to accomplish, but who do we want to be among these people, among this community that we're serving? How do we want to show up? And are we doing that? And what do we need to do to make that possible? One of the things that I kept coming back to in my work is that I don't want to just see us get to our goal or just get the job done. But who we are and how we are at the end of that race really, really matters. We are in social services. Our jobs are relationships. Relationships are our job. And we need to make sure that we are our best and fullest and most true self. And yeah, life is hard and this work is hard, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't actively take steps to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and making sure that we're tending and that we are stewarding who we are as people. We have that responsibility, and I think we owe it to ourselves, to the people that we serve, but to the world in general, our communities, our family, our friends, to be who we were really made to be and to be able to show up in a full, healthy way. If you are working in or running a nonprofit or social service agency, and you are seeing the need to establish some better practices and figure out, I know that my team needs something so that we can operate better, so we can feel like we're not run aground or we're not overwhelmed all the time. If you feel like you just need someone to kind of come in and help walk you through that process, that is what I do. I love walking with organizations just like I do with my one-on-one clients and health coaching, it's client-led. You lead the way. I want to know what you think will make your organization the best it can possibly be. I want to hear your dream and your vision. I want to hear your needs and challenges. And from there, we're going to work together to put strategies in motion. We're going to assess the real sources of stress because oftentimes I've been surprised what really causes our stress is not what we expected. So we'll work together to find these deep sources of stress, what's really actually pushing the buttons on your team, and what can we do to shift things around? Are they big changes? Are they little changes? Together, we can kind of figure out what your team needs and how you can make those slight changes in your policies, practices, and operations to make your organization a place that thrives, a place where there's 
consistency and there's great rapport and trust among your team members where you're doing excellent work and you feel great doing it. That is my dream for you, and I would love to support your team. If you feel like your organization or your staff needs some extra support and attention, visit my website, goodsustained.com. And you can fill out an interest form and I would love to connect with you. You can also find me on Instagram at good underscore sustained. I would love to connect with you and see how I can support your team. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you for who you are and what you do. Thank you for choosing to enter this work and to be a servant and to live a life of service. I'm just truly, truly, truly so deeply moved by the people that I've met in this space. And I know that you are out there and you're listening and I just wish I could hug you and look you in the eye and say, you matter. And I'm so grateful that you're here and I'm honored to link arms and stand beside you in this work. So be blessed and let's get back to this episode. What is kind of your dream outcome for your research? Like if a executive director or a nonprofit leader or an organization leader is going to look at your research, what are you hoping that they take away? And how do you hope that they would implement what they learn from your research? I have a couple of like main things that I really want leaders who have read my work to kind of gather from it. There's like five main things that kind of came off of it. One of them is to like streamline communication during crisis. So I hope that organizations are thinking about that. I mean, we were talking about that at the beginning about what do you do, you know, and we were just trying to figure out and you were trying to figure out how to communicate with us about what to do. And so just coming up with a plan of how to streamline communication when things like COVID or something else happens, that's important. Another one is to like foster connection and emotional support and provide that, you know, so that we can support each other. If that is not organically happening, just providing opportunities for that. And then another thing is to provide tangible support during crisis. You know, if they're working more hours because of the crisis to provide more compensation for that. And another thing is to like ensure support is available for all staff. So just equity within the ways that you're supporting people during crisis. And then the other one, like I had talked earlier about how I focused on my last study was about work flexibility and for leaders to provide ways for social workers to have work-life balance during crisis and be able to take care of their families and take care of themselves and their clients. And so in different contexts, work flexibility looks different because some places you have to be on site to practice, some places you can do it remotely. And so I think that that translates differently. But those are kind of the five main takeaways. I'm hoping that if um, leaders are reading my work or listening looking to at my articles or listening to this podcast. Yeah. Like I hope that they're listening. They hear that. It's just that when this happens again, like that work kind of needs to be happening now. I hope that leaders after COVID or during COVID were looking at what happened? You know, what could we do better? And that kind of thing. And so those are some of the findings that I found. So hopefully they'll hear those things and think about their own organization and context and think about their people themselves, what they're needing and see what changes need to be made. When you said when this happens again, that just like, I felt that in my body of like, 
oh God, I hope this doesn't happen again. But I mean, maybe not COVID specifically will happen again, but like something, there's going to be another global crisis. Like you said, 9-11 was maybe not a global crisis as like COVID was, but it was a crisis for sure in New York and in the United States. There's always going to be some sort of something. And you're right, like we have to start building the systems now to be prepared for whenever the inevitable next thing happens. Yeah, in Houston, like where we live, this area, we're prone to hurricanes and things like that. And so I think that this, some of those findings can be helpful for that as well as like, what do you do when power is down and that kind of thing? I think your research really does lend itself to this broader conversation that we can't just take for granted that we as social service providers can continue to show up and do our jobs with little thought as to how we're actually going to sustain that work and make that happen. And I think the pattern in the past has very much been we're the helpers. We don't take anything. We don't receive anything. We're here to give. We give. We give. And I think this is kind of lending it to not just self-care, but there needs to be this corporate care, this idea, and not just go get a massage or go take a half a mental health day when you've had a hard call. We're going to be intentionally thinking through next steps, just like we would for our clients, because we're human too. Yeah. Yeah. And we have to be thinking through this. And so I just think it's part of this overall broader conversation, right? That it takes time and intention and purpose if we're going to put these things in place, but it matters not just for us, but for the people that we serve. Because, you know, social workers can only do so much to take care of themselves that they can control, right? Then outside of it, there's an area that the organization can control to help provide that space and time for them to take care of themselves. And so I think that what can organizations do to provide margin, to provide the resources and systematically set social workers up well to do their jobs. That's an important part of the conversation is just thinking about the ecosystem that social workers are put in to do their work. You can be a super resilient, amazing person doing all the right things, know your balance, but if your job and the constraints of your job and how it's set up, if that is not conducive and it's impossible, then you're always going to fail and you're going to be struggling and it's going to lead to burnout and other things we know social workers are prone to experience. And so how can you change the environment to set social workers and helping professionals up for success, basically? Yeah. I love that you said ecosystem because that's what we learn in social work is that like behavior in the environment, development in the environment, like social work is the lens of how does this thrive within the environment? And so I love that you're going, hey, social workers already see this lens of the environment is part of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And now let's apply that to ourselves and go, how can we set up an ecosystem that social workers and helping professionals can thrive in. And I love that. I mean, you guys see it. The creation of this podcast is for helping, helping professionals be filled up so that they can pour out. And I just think like what happens when there's like nothing coming in from your workplace and you're struggling and it's a place that really is not like life-giving to be in. It would be very challenging to just focus on the work. And the things you have to do because social work is already so emotionally taxing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I loved that we implemented after COVID or during COVID, I can't remember exactly when the timeline was, but we implemented that self-care hour, you know, that like everyone on our team, everyone that worked at our organization, you got a paid self-care hour once a week. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people really, you know, that was a really helpful thing for them. I know some people used it to go to therapy. Some people used it to like go on a long run because running was their way of discharging everything. Some people just came in later and spent the hour in bed. And it was like, whatever self-care is to you, it's great that that was moving in. And I think that that did make a huge difference. But you tell me, you were the one experiencing that. You were the worker, you were the line worker. So at the time, did that self-care hour help? Yeah. You know what? Now that I think about it, what meant the most was not just that you guys were offering that. It was just that you understood us and that you listened to us. You know, um, I just remember at the time just being like, wow, we're in this together and you really know what's going on with me. You understand this work. And so that practice was very helpful, but also it was meaningful because you guys were in it with us. I felt supported and listened to, you know, when that was put in place as well as other things that you guys were doing. I just felt like you were very in tune with us and that was supportive. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that acknowledgement of effort, right? Acknowledgement of the cost. We see the cost and it is what it is, right? Like this work is hard. And I keep coming back to that, that we don't have these conversations because this should be easy. Pain is hard and justice is hard. And we've chosen to be in the middle of it. And so to recognize the cost of that and to say, we're going to do what we can to offset this and to provide support, I just think is, like you said, where that kind of bomb really does come in. Yeah. And when I was talking to other social workers, their organizations were providing different things for them at the time, but they didn't find some of them actually supportive, like giving them food or other things. Like they just felt like they were throwing things at them, but they weren't really listening to them or giving them what they were needing. And so... I just feel like that element of connection is so important for social workers to feel like it's supported because that's another element in my research that I kind of talk about is perceived support. There's a difference between given support and perceived support. And it's kind of like tied to the idea of love languages. Like how do people actually feel loved? How do people actually feel supported? And so when you know your people and what their needs are, that's a part of it. Listening and understanding each other is so important. Just like you would with a client, you know, like we're working so hard to gain trust with our clients. Like that work also goes into trust with employees and connection there. Man, that's so good. Yeah. What's the name of your dissertation, Jill? So it's long. (laughs) It's a long title. (laughs) Okay. So it is investigating organizational support for social workers during a global pandemic an exploratory sequential mixed method study. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I had to read it well, out. I have my PowerPoint <laughs> up because I was like, what did I do? Okay. <laughs> well, if it's possible, we'll put it in our show notes so that people can find it. Yes. One of the things I want to talk about is work flexibility. Because I think for me, that's the one that has like hit home the most personally is like the whole reason that I work for myself now is so that I always know that I will always be able to prioritize what I need to do. I won't ever have to ask somebody else, hey, can I take this time off? Or, hey, can I go to my son's holiday party at school? Like, I always know that I'm in complete control of my work-life balance. 
that was always important to me, but it became even more important to me as a working mom during COVID when all of the support, you know, that's there to support working moms was pulled out from underneath us. And I just remember thinking like, I have to figure out how to do it all. Like I have to figure out how to parent my child and work at the same time, Mm -hmm. all in one space. And I just really had this epiphany of like, oh gosh, if this ever happens again, I want to be prepared. And the only way I knew how to be prepared was to be in control of what my work life looks like. Yeah, that's such a great point. I love what you're emphasizing with needing work flexibility. It's really about having a sense of autonomy and control in the middle of chaos. And so that's why I think that was such a need for you know everyone, not just people with kids, but you know, what can we control when everything feels out of control? Like having a way to flex our time and our work demands that we have, it can be very like helpful for us. And so I love how you described that of just like, I want to be prepared and know what to expect when something like this happens again, so that the things that are most important to you, your family and like your own health and care so that those won't be shaken too much during that. That was definitely a theme, I think, not just in social work, but in like work in general, you know, people were seeing that the move toward remote working and like work flexibility, there were so many benefits with that. But now I think we've shifted back to now we're more hybrid and then some workplaces are fully back to normal and some, some will never be the same. You know, some will always be affected by this and they'll realize, oh, it worked better when we only came in two, three times a week. Let's keep it. Yeah. That worked better for our lives and stuff. And so I think it was a big like lesson for everyone in shifting, especially in the US because we're, you know, time is money. And so there's definitely like a shift there that, a lesson from COVID for all of us of how that works. And especially within the field of social work too, how does that affect our self-care? I think that this is an important part of the conversation. And yeah, especially those with kids, I think that it allowed them to re reorient their lives around their kids who were suddenly home from school during that time. Yeah. I love the way that you said reorient because that is what it was. I know that's what it was for me. And I have seen it with like my other, you know, my mom friends that were all together, you know, with the same stage of life. But yeah, like we all are still in this thing of like, oh yeah, you know, we love our jobs and we are super ambitious, successful women, Mm -hmm. but we also will like leave work every time and be at the Christmas party. You know, like there will never be a time where I'm going to put work ahead of my child And what I love is that like, I do have that autonomy and that power to do that for myself. But I see a lot of my friends who work at organizations who, you know, used to be, you need to be in your seat eight to five. And now it's like, hey, I pick my kids up at three, you know, because post COVID, we don't do daycare anymore. You know, our kids don't get on the daycare bus to go to daycare after school. My work day's over at three. I can work from home. I can be on the phone, taking a phone meeting while I'm driving. I pick my kids up. I can work the you know, the last hour and a half from home at work. And it's like, gosh, why weren't we doing this before? Why weren't we having these like moms actually can do it all with a little bit of support and a little bit of out of the box thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And I've talked to you before, Faith, you do some work like after hours or like in the Mm. evenings. 
because that's when your child is asleep. I know I have coworkers who do that as well because that's what works for them. Like when they put their child to sleep, like they're finally able to focus and they can power, get that work done. The only downside I have seen with, you know, the shift to flexibility is sometimes we're always working then if you're flexing your time. And so that's something like everybody has to monitor personally is just, okay, now I don't have this like set time that I work. I need to make sure that I'm not just like overworking then because all hours are now available. I can flex in different ways. And so I think that that's something to what people have to work on. That's something in my office we've talked about recently. It's just like, you know, I know that we can flex our time and we do things kind of differently now, but let's make sure we're taking time off actually every week to revamp and recharge. Yeah. I like how you said like you have to self-monitor it, but it also comes from the organization too of saying, hey, it's a priority. Yes, do the flexibility, but also only still work 40 hours. And so it needs to be both self-monitoring and part of the organizational structure. Yeah, for sure. So it's a little bit more complicated (laughs) than just work your hours and then the expectations and communication about it has to be there. I just love that you, you know, you said before that your passion is to serve vulnerable people. And I just find it so interesting that with that passion, with that focus, it led you to this research because this is important in the overall story of how we impact the people in our community that need support. And if we don't have this conversation, we're going to miss out on what we really want to do. We really want to make a difference for people in people's lives. So I just love that this research is part of that overall mission and story for you. Well, thanks for saying that. Yeah, I honestly, I just really love social workers and helping professionals. I'm just a huge fan. (laughs) At the end of the day, like we're the tools to help people. And so if if we're not sharp enough to help, then we're not going to be as useful. And so that's such a great analogy. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I'm just a big fan. Can I share a quote from my dissertation? Yes, please do. It just kind of like inspired me about like why I wanted to work on research that support social workers. Like I said, I'm just a big fan of social workers, but I love this quote. It's a Fred Rogers quote, you know, Mr. Rogers. (laughs) So this is what he says. He says, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And so that's kind of what I thought about during the pandemic is yes, like it's crazy. We don't know what's going on, but like there are people helping and those are the people that provide so much hope for us. And social workers were a part of that group, medical professionals as well. And other, you know, teachers, people, teachers, absolutely. And law enforcement. And so I think, thanks for saying that. I think that if we help each other, if we're helping other helping professionals, we're helping these populations that we have a a heart for. So, yeah. yeah. And like you said, it's all a trickle down effect. So what do you hope is the trickle down effect of this? Like in one organization or broad spectrum, like 20 years from now, what is the trickle down effect in the perfect world? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. I hope that there's more consciousness of like organizational support within the different settings that social workers inhabit. I hope that there is more evidence-based practices in this area of like things that we know really help social workers. I hope that 
more research can be done in this area to really know what helps social workers to be as successful as possible to do their job so that it's not just kind of disorganized and, oh, we do this to help them and other things, but no, like we know what works to help social workers and what we can do. And it's regulated and specific to, you know, different areas of social work. So I hope there's a movement of that. I hope there's a movement of support for social workers that comes in that is well thought out and effective. You know, our field, we have so many people in it who just do it because they want to help people. But at the same time, I think like we really need the structure in our field to do our work well. And in order to do that, we really need like some guidelines, you know? So I hope that gets built up more. And I hope that there's just like more awareness within organizations of how to help social workers. And so that organizations are more cohesive and caring places for social workers to be, because like you said, it is a trickle down effect. If like, we want our clients to trust us. So it'd be great if us as coworkers feel like we can trust each other in the work we're doing. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. Gosh, there's just so much good stuff here. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing this with us and hanging out with us for a little bit. And thank you. Yeah. I can't wait to see what comes out of this. You know, I'm thinking what Krista's company is, Good Sustain, like that's exactly what you're doing is you're consulting with businesses about how to build these systems within organizations. And a part of that is trying to get the buy-in from the organization of like, hey, this is important for us to invest in, Yeah, you know? And so like now we have research that says it is important for you to invest in it. And this is why. And what's feasible? Like what can we actually provide? What can we do to help our staff? Krista and I, we've talked about that as well, which has been really fun to see what you're doing with these specific settings, you know, and what their needs are and listening to the coworkers and kind of stepping in and being a mediator. I'm a big fan of what you're doing there, Krista, for sure. Thanks, friend. Back at you. Yeah. Thanks for being on. It's been great to have you. For those listening, check out Jill's research. We'll put it in the show notes and read it and let it inform your work. Let it spark questions, have conversations with your staff, with your team. And then coming years, I love Jill, what you said, like, let's take these lessons and move forward with them. You took stock of them in almost real time. And now we can really plan ahead for what's to come. So thank you so much for being on. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I love you guys. I'm sorry the conversation was not that funny. It wasn't that... (laughs) We set it up to be so funny and I I got all researchy, so I apologize. (laughs) But I love y'all. Thank you so much. Yeah, we love you. Thanks for being on. We love you. Well, that was fun. That was fun. That was just a breath of fresh air is what it felt like. That's Dr. Landers for you. (laughs) Yes, Dr. Landers. She's too young to be a doctor. She's so young. I know. We're just about the same age. I think she's a year younger than me. That's what I'm saying. Like to call a friend of mine doctor doctor. is just like so so great. I know. I I love it. (laughs) So grown up, I guess that's what I'm saying. Not that she's too young to be a doctor, but like putting doctor in front of someone's name is like feels very grown up. And I don't feel very grown up. So... I keep waiting for it to happen. I keep waiting for me to feel like an adult. And I'm still like, is someone going to come bring me a snack? (laughs) (laughs) They 
never do, but thankfully I can get myself a snack. So we're okay. Yes. I love her. And I just think, I love that she chose this for her dissertation because it was just so timely. We were working together when she was kind of conceptualizing all of it. We have talked a little bit about, you know, oh, how's it going, you know, here and there. But it was good to hear like the whole thing from start to finish and to really understand it and go, wow, like you took a really hard time and you did some like really crucially important with it. You did something crucially important with it that could have a such a broad impact. Right. Just so proud. So yeah. proud. So another great episode to you on the other side of my microphone, on the other side of your speaker. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Yes. We always end our episodes just talking about how we're going to fill our emotional cup over the next couple of weeks or so. So Faith, what do you have going on to fill yourself back up? That is a good question. Um, I'm kind of in your boat where like, oh, I forgot to prepare for this part. <laughs> like where you were at uh, last week. But no, you know, we're coming up on all of the holiday season. And so, yeah, I'm going to have family in town. We're going to do all the things. So I'm really excited about that. We have a break from work, have a break from school, have some family time and just really enjoy that time. And as I get older and as all of my relatives and everything get older, it has become really important to really connect and have those times where we can really just enjoy each other's presence. And so, yeah, so I plan on doing that over the next couple of weeks. What about you? I love that. I am really trying to just embrace the Christmas season. I realized just marking like what makes this season feel like Christmas, because I think the older we get, the more Christmas doesn't feel like Christmas. Yeah. And I'm just realizing like, oh, I have the power to make it feel like Christmas for myself. I just have to do it. So whether that's like watching Christmas movies or listening to Christmas music, I just started listening to The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I try to like listen or read it every December. And I was listening to it yesterday and there's a quote in the first chapter where Marley's ghost comes out, he's all wrapped up in his chains and he's telling Scrooge, you have this one chance to have a different fate than I do. Oh, yes. And Scrooge says, but Marley, you're a great man of business. And he says, business, mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Mercy, benevolence, forbearance were all my business. I literally rewound and listen to that like three or four times because yeah it's just this beautiful reminder mankind is my business and it's at this time of year when I kind of take stock of my life and I'm like am I really living into my values where am I doing that where am I not and I literally thought last night if I have a tombstone I would want that to be on my tombstone Uh, mankind was her business just saying like man is that how I still live oh I love that yeah just taking some time to like really burrow myself into this season and soak it up for all it's worth. Really quick, I want to give somebody a shout out. You said Christmas music. We just have such talented and like cool people in our lives. Our really close friends, the Herds, Courtney and Timmy Herd, they released a Christmas song that is just the most beautiful song I've ever heard. It's beautiful and it's just so telling of the Christmas story of the night that Jesus was born. And it's just oh, so good. It's called Starlight. It's on Spotify. Their band name is Let It Be Heard. It's so good. Find it. Listen to it. 
it's just so good. Oh my gosh. They are wonderful and amazing and precious in every way. So yes, if you're listening to our podcast, you want to listen to this song by Courtney and Timmy Heard because it's precious. And my friend Kayla is, I think she did some vocals for it. I, it's just stunning. Yeah. It's just such a beautiful song. Like you can just tell that they put so much time and effort into every piece of the song, the music, the lyrics. I don't want to give it away, but they do some surprise stuff in there. And so it's just so good. I'm always in awe of like how we are surrounded by so many talented, incredible people. It's like, oh, that's my friend who like I see on a Tuesday night, but like they have a song on Spotify. How cool is that? Yes. Yes. I feel the exact same way. I'm like, oh, I'm friends with Dr. Landers. Oh, my friends (laughs) just recorded a song. Yeah. Yeah. We're so blessed. We really are. I know the holidays are different for everybody. Not everyone's holidays are cheerful and merry and not everyone celebrates the holidays. But I loved how you said like this time of year is just really the time of year where everyone kind of gets into the collective of like, hey, mankind is on our mind during this time. And like, how can we be giving of ourselves and giving of our gifts in whatever way that means, if that means monetarily gifts, or if it means the gifts, our spiritual gifts, how can we be giving of those? How can I take stock in what gifts I've been given so that I can pass them on. And so I love how you said, like, we all have the power to make this season be meaningful to us in whatever way that means for us. And so that is what we wish for everyone out there is that you have a happy holiday season. I think by the time that this one comes out, Christmas will have passed, but we still want to wish you happy holidays. (laughs) Yes. Take whatever beauty and light and joy you received over the holidays and take it into this new year. Yes, for sure. All right. Well, we are wrapping up another episode, but we'll see you guys next time. Bye.